We are continuing our series through the book of Numbers, titled The Gospel in Numbers. We are on part three. The title of our message here today is The Need to Be Clean. There is a need for the people of God to be clean if they intend on being in His presence. Did you know that? Started all the way back in the Old Testament. Continues on here today. We're just going to work our way through the handout. So if you did not receive a handout here today, you can raise your hand and Lucas would love to get you a handout. If you don't have a Bible here today, Lucas would also love to get you one of those. You don't have a Bible at all, that is our gift to you here today. You can take that Bible home, put your name in it, and read it. Because Bibles that sit on the shelves. That's right. Outside the camp. Number one, outside the camp. We looked last week at the structure of everything, how God had established it. Putting the tribes in the shape of a cross, we even looked at that. At the center of it all was the tabernacle, the presence of God. There's nothing more important than that which is at the center. It was where they received their marching orders. It was where they received their instructions. God was signifying to his people, number one, he wanted to be with them. Aren't you glad that we are serving a God that wants to be with his people? He loves them. He wants to be with them. He wants to spend time with them. And so he established a tabernacle that would later come to temple. And we know now that through Christ and what he accomplished, we're singing about these realities, we're talking about it, the veil was torn in two. Christ has completed the work so that you and I now have access into the Holy of Holies. We're invited in, whereas back in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, not everybody was allowed in. Only the high priests were allowed to go in. Even the Levites could not even look upon and touch these articles that were within the tabernacle. But Christ has fulfilled this all. You and I are now invited into the very presence of God. Not only is that true, but check this out. Scripture tells us that His Holy Spirit is living inside of us. Isn't that what He says in Romans? Don't you know you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? Don't you know you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? This is why I believe Jesus said greater works than these than he was doing are you going to de- do. I don't believe that that was a quantity greater, or excuse me, just gave it away. A quality of greater works? Because who has ever done greater works than Jesus has? Ever. I believe it's a quantity. His Holy Spirit, the Spirit that was dwelling upon him, that came upon him when he was baptized. Remember that? And then led him into the desert where he was tempted by Satan and fasting prayer. And then he returned in the power of the Holy Spirit. Is now put inside every believer. And there is a need for the believer to continue to be being filled. Ephesians 5, right? Continue to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. We need that daily. We need to be crying out for fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. And this work now is going out. It's not only happening through one person here on planet Earth. It is now spreading out. Every believer in Christ has the Holy Spirit living inside of them. Able to go into the dark world. He said, first of all, that He is the light of the world. Then now He tells us, you are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hid. Take this light into the darkness. Great This is what's happening. This is God desiring fellowship relationship. 
with his people. If God is going to go on the camp, though, going back to numbers, it must be made and kept clean, undefiled. It cannot be have any defilement upon it. The three main areas of it being unclean we can see in Numbers chapter 5. Lord God spoke to Moses saying, this is verse 1, Command the children of Israel that they put out the camp every leper, everyone who has a discharge, and whoever becomes defiled by a corpse. You shall put both male and female and you put them outside the camp that they may not defile the camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the children of Israel did so and put them outside the camp as the Lord spoke to Moses, so the children of Israel did. It wasn't always the easiest thing to do the things that God was telling them to do. Is it always easy in your life the different things that God, as you study the word and you see the, 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 what he calls us to do, is that always an easy thing? It's not always an easy thing. So three main areas here of being unclean. Number one was diseased. There's a scripture that you can jot down with this if you want and look this up where this was first presented to the people, Leviticus chapter 13, verse 3. They have, were having a bodily discharge. That was Leviticus 15, chapter 2. He lists them all here, but this is where it was initiated. And number 3, touching a dead body, Leviticus 21, 1. If these things occurred, they were to be put out of the camp for a time, not for always, but for a time. And depending upon what they were dealing with there would depend on how long they would do it. It could be uh, just um, a, a short time until evening or it could also be seven days. Remember we talked in the first week that we introduced the book of Numbers in typology. A lot of typology that's here for us to glean. Here's what the typology is in this. He's giving an example that which is unclean is a picture of sin. Not that having a disease is a sin, but he was using that as typology for representing sin, that which would be unclean and would defile the presence of God. God said in, in chapter 5, verse 3, you shall put them outside the camp. Why? Why did they need to be put outside the camp? He says, the very next sentence, that they may not defile their camps in the midst of which I dwell. God says, I'm there. That's why they have to be put out. They cannot coexist. They do not get along. Defilement in the presence of God. So if God is dwelling in the camp, it cannot be defiled. So they would be put outside of the camp until they would be declared clean again. We're going to come back to this a little bit later on. I want you to kind of make a mental note of this here right now. But notice again the response of the people. This is one of those difficult passages in Scripture. And can you imagine if you were being told to do this over simply a leprosy, that a disease that nobody had asked for had come upon your family, and you're told you need to put them outside of the camp. But notice the people's dedication to the Word of God. Didn't matter if it was family. What mattered was this is the Word and the will of God. And it has to be obeyed. It has to be followed no matter how difficult it may be. They didn't try to redefine the Word and say, ah, 
This is tough. This is happening in our culture all around us today, isn't it? Right? And a lot of times because people are dealing with things within their families that God would consider and spells it out very clearly in Scripture, these things are an abomination. Right? And oftentimes when it gets close to home, when it's family involved, people begin to compromise. And people begin to redefine, okay, maybe we do need to look at this differently. But it's compromise, friends. Right? It's compromise. We need to be like the people of Israel here and say, if this is what the Word of God says, then we have to take God's side. Amen? We can't compromise. Even when maybe people within our family, you want to love people well in your family that are dealing with difficult things, that are dealing with things that Scripture would say is sin within their lives, you want to love them well, don't compromise. Love them well. Speak the truth in love. Don't give up on them. Be with them. Show them that love. But don't bow the knee and try to redefine the word of God. Simply because it is close to home. Friends, I'm telling you this because pastors are doing this left and right in our culture today. Sad. They're choosing rather than to abide by the word of God to try to redefine it. And in doing so, here's, I mean, it's sad enough that it's just them, but it's, here's what's even more sad. They're leading many people astray as they do it. Dangerous. Can't have anything to do with that. We need to continue to stand strong on the word of God, not because we want to be harsh, not because we want to be hard, but because we believe God's word is true. And we believe that the only way anybody will ever be set free is if they embrace the truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You want to see people walking in freedom? You want to see people set free from the chains that Satan's binding them in? You preach the truth to them and watch the truth set them free. Watch the Holy Spirit transform their lives. We see it happening all around us in people's lives. It's beautiful. This is the work God does. You can't compromise. You don't make deals with the enemy. You continue to stand upon the truth. Verses 5 through 10. This is dealing with those who had wronged each other. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel. When a man or a woman commits any sin that men commit in unfaithfulness against the Lord, that person is guilty. Then he shall confess the sin which he has committed. He shall make restitution for his trespass in full, plus one-fifth of it, give to the one whom he has wronged. But if the man who has no relative and whom restitution may be made, the wrong, the restitution for the wrong must go to the Lord. For the priest, in addition to the ram of the atonement, with which atonement is made for him, every offspring of all the holy things of the children of Israel, which they bring to the priest, shall be his. And every man's holy thing shall be his. Whatever any man gives the priest shall be his. This is dealing with those who have wronged each other. And he's given us an example here. Notice in verse 6, he gets right to the point that sin is bad because it's been committed against God. First and foremost. 
Not because it's hurt others, and it may, and we need to make things right with others, but first and foremost, it needs to be recognized as being committed against God. When a man or woman commits any sin that men commit in unfaithfulness against the Lord, that's what's bad about sin. That, this is the number one thing that needs to be dealt with. David said this with his sin with Bathsheba, and it's recorded in Psalm chapter 51. And he said this, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. He recognized who he needed to come to in repentance. And yes, he needed to make things right with others. But first and foremost, our sins are crimes committed against God. And that's why they're so bad. The holy God of the universe, the one who's given us life and breath. We've turned, we've taken those things and we've said, I'm God, not you. We turn our back on him and we spit in his face in our sin and we say, we know better. This tells us that our relationship with others are important. you believe that? Our relationship with others are important. God has put, not put, us into community with one another so that we can get filled with bitterness and constantly be fighting. Let me repeat that. God has not put us in community with one another so we can become bitter with another and constantly be fighting. That's not why God has put us in community with one another. He tells us to love one another. He tells us to forgive one another. He tells us to reconcile with one another. All in the same way that Christ has done all of this with and towards us. Do you not see that all over scripture? Even as God in Christ has forgiven you, so also. Right? For, it's in the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? Forgive us our trespasses in the same way. Are you willing to pray this prayer? In the same way that we forgive others our trespasses against us. That's a dangerous prayer. <coughs> But it's biblical. He is laying out here the heart of repentance. In talking about restitution here, he's laying out the heart of repentance. Remember when Zacchaeus got saved? Remember Zacchaeus was up in the tree? Wee little man, the wee little man was he? Remember that one? Climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Kelsey, you remember this one, right? You guys ever seen this one growing up? I'll make sure they did it right. As that Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house today. And he goes to his house. And Zacchaeus displays a heart of repentance. Because he says, I've wronged others. And anybody that I've wronged, I want to pay back four times. And Jesus' response to that was this. Today, salvation has come to his house. This fruit of repentance he wasn't holding anything back. If he wronged anybody, he's going to repay it four times. It's restitution. Salvation became very evident as Zacchaeus responded to the hope of the gospel. Verses 5, or excuse me, chapter 5, verses 11 through 31. In this, he's talking about a doubt that a, that a husband may have or suspecting his wife of unfaithfulness. And how they were to handle this. If she was actually unfaithful, we're to come to the end of that and find it. And figure it out. And if not, she was to be obviously not falsely accused. 
Obviously, if anyone was caught in the act by the man himself or a witness, then you don't have to go through this ritual that God gave them here. But if there was even a suspicion that, that this was the process, that at least would get to the truth of it. This actually protected women back in this day because men could kind of do whatever they wanted to. Even in the Egyptian culture that the Israelites had just come out of, women weren't much more than property of the man. So if the man was jealous, he could simply do away with her without much holding him back. But here now the Lord is saying, let there be a process. Because if she's guilty, then it'll come to light. If you're suspicious, go through the process. And it will be revealed what the truth of the matter is. Now we know from Scripture that God takes marriage seriously and faithfulness in marriage seriously. Because He takes covenant seriously. Did you know that? God takes covenant seriously. He has made a covenant with His people that He doesn't intend on breaking. It is for that reason that he puts such an emphasis on marriage. We also know that he came to take on our condemnation for our freedom. Did you know that? He came to take on our condemnation for our freedom. Think about this, friends. You remember the lady that was brought to Jesus, caught in the very act of adultery. They didn't have to go through this ritual. She was caught red-handed. And Jesus said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, didn't he? And one by one, everybody left. Until it was just Jesus and this woman. Isn't that interesting? There was one who could have thrown all the stones. He was standing right there. Right? Because there was one who had never sinned standing right before him. And he says, where are all your accusers? Where is everybody that brought you to me? Does no one condemn you anymore? And she says, no one, Lord. And then he says something astounding. He says, neither do I condemn you. Think about that for a second. Is that justice? Was Jesus simply, we were just talking about this a couple of weeks ago, friends. Was Jesus simply sweeping her sin under the carpet simply because he's just a forgiving God? He's like, oh, I've came to forgive people. You're sorry about this? Well, let's just sweep this. Let's just forget about this. Neither do I condemn you. Here's why Jesus could say this. Here's why Jesus was the only one who could ever say. Because in saying that, he was condemning himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. He took her sin upon himself and he, not too long after that, in time and space, took on her adultery. And God poured his wrath upon the son in her place. Think about that. So that justice could be served, so that God's wrath could be satisfied. Oh, he was still just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. It's amazing. 
He doesn't just sweep it under the carpet. He deals with it fully. He could say it because he was condemned in her place. Notice his call to her as she leaves. He says, go and sin no more. Leave your lifestyle of sin. Repentance is critical. Go and sin no more. Leave your lifestyle. Walk in a new way of life that I've provided for you. After all, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Did Jesus hang out with sinners? You hear this a lot in our culture today, right? Jesus hung out with sinners all the time. You better believe he did. Absolutely he did. But his approach with them was always repentance and transformation. Friends, you cannot get away from that. Jesus did not just hang out with sinners for the sake of hanging out with sinners and rubbing shoulders and, uh, and then actually allowing his life to start being conformed to their lifestyle. Never. His message to the sinner was always the same. You need to repent. You need to repent. Repentance and transformation. And those who embrace these words to him received life. And we're told, leave your lifestyle of sin and embrace fully what Christ has accomplished for you. That's always the message that Jesus gave. This was always his approach. What did Jesus say himself? I didn't come, and think about this, the rich young ruler that came to him, he let him walk away. Didn't compromise with him. He says, hey, let's work out a deal here. You don't have to give up all your riches to follow. Didn't do that. He let the man walk away sad. He wasn't going to compromise truth. What did Jesus himself say? I didn't come to call the righteous. In other words, my purpose in coming here was to bring all the righteous people together. Want to know why? Because there weren't any. According to Romans chapter 3, there's none righteous, not even one. So, okay, he didn't come to call the righteous. But you know what he did come for? What did he say? I came to call sinners to what? Repentance. So yes, Jesus hung out for the sinners. He called them to repentance. Oh, we got to study the word of God. We got to take the whole thing in context for what it's talking about. Otherwise you get goofy ideas. And people find excuses for their lifestyles. It's not biblical, my friends. Number two, separated to the Lord. Chapter six of Numbers begins to highlight this Nazarite vow. The Hebrew word for the Nazarite vow is nazir, which means to separate. Which means to separate. This was a voluntary thing. No one had to do it unless God had called somebody to do it. Something that he wanted them to do. And even in a couple of cases that we have in scripture, they were to do it their whole lives from birth. You think of Samuel, you think of Samson. From birth. This Nazarite vow could last anywhere from up to 100 days, but typically was around 30 days. Three things was entailed with this Nazarite vow. 
They would not eat or drink anything from the grapevine, anything that was fermented in any way. Secondly, they would not cut their hair any time during the vow. Some of us don't have that option. <laughs> Thirdly, they may not go near a dead body, even if it was a relative. If they did, they'd have to go through the whole process of out, put them outside the camp. The typology here is the Nazarite vow is a picture of a life given to or separated to the Lord. This is something that we're all called to. Right? Maybe not about getting a haircut. <laughs> right? But the typology is still true here. God intends for His people to live a separated life for His glory. To not be a part of this world, but separated. To be used for Him and His purposes. We're called to do this before the Lord. What is Romans chapter 12, verse 2? Right? We talked about in light of God's mercy. I urge you therefore, brothers. This is how it begins. Verse 1. I urge you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Present your bodies a living sacrifice before the Lord. Which is your reasonable act of service in light of everything that God has done in His mercy and His grace upon your life. And don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Allow God to continue to change the way we think. Amen? This happens at conversion, but it continues on. It doesn't stop there. God is continuing to transform our minds. Aren't you happy about that? He's continuing to, today, right now, He wants to transform our minds in the way that we may think. Whatever that might be. To bring us more and more into alignment with His Word and continue to allow us to become more and more like Jesus. Number three in your handout, the leaders and the Levites. The leaders and the Levites. This covers chapter 7 and 8. All the leaders here, including the 12 that had been assigned over each of the tribes, were bringing their gifts and their offerings here together. From each of the tribes, they were bringing them to the tabernacle. Chapter 7, verse 5, it's, it's, it, they were called as the Levites and the priests to accept these offerings from them. And then it lists every one and what they gave. And I'm not going to read through all of that here right now, just for a lack of time. But do it on your own and it'll be fun. Verse 89 in... Chapter 7 talks about the ark. Now when Moses went into the tabernacle of meeting to speak with him, that is to God, he heard the voice of one speaking to him from above the mercy seat, which was on the ark of the testimony, from between the two cherubim, thus he spoke to them. Think about this for a second. What was inside the ark? What was placed inside? Ten Commandments. Absolutely. Ten Commandments that God had written. This is God's law. This is God's standard. And above that is God. Right? In the presence of God. God is there. And you have that in between God and these Ten Commandments. You have the mercy seat. 
that when the high priest would go in there, he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat seven times. What an amazing picture this is of the mediator of the new covenant. Here you have the standards of God. Here you have God himself. There's no way anyone at any time, at any point in history has ever been able to keep those Ten Commandments. What was needed in between? What you needed in between was a mercy seat, a mediator, somebody who was going to propitiate your sins. And this is what the high priest was continually doing and representing before the presence of God himself. Going on behalf of these people, what a picture, taking the blood from the sacrificed lamb, and he would make atonement for the people. He would atone for them. Next he gets to chapter 8 where he highlights lamps and lampstands. In verses 5 through 26, you have the cleansing and the dedication of the Levites. This was a need, a necessity once again. Speaking the same thing that we were looking at at the beginning. If God's presence was going to be there, they needed to be cleansed. They needed to go through this process. Now none of these things, Scripture tells us in the New Testament Hebrews, none of these things that they were doing actually did a work of atoning for, right? Nobody was ever forgiven because, because the animal was sufficient enough to forgive somebody's sins or to be the sacrifice. Christ came and He fulfilled all of that. And yet they did these things to, to show that God had an order and that these things needed to be satisfied and continue to speak that message. The one who comes before the Lord, the one who works for the Lord, the one who serves the Lord has to be clean. And now he says, here's how you do it. Here's the process and procedure. They had to make an atonement for those that were going to have access into the work of the tabernacle. And again, all of these things foreshadowed the need for cleansing. And then they were declared his. They shall be mine, says the Lord. There is a biblical principle that is highlighted in the New Testament. That those who preach the gospel, I'm not just highlighting this because I'm a pastor here right now. But it's over and over again shown throughout the Old Testament. I believe it's a principle that can be applied within the New Testament. Of receiving the living from the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 9 to 14. If you want to take some time and look these passages up. Luke chapter 10. Verses uh, 7 and 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 7 through 10. This is why I believe this principle, just the principle of it, not necessarily the law of it, but the principle of it. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 9 through 14. Luke chapter 10, verse 7. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 7 through 10. I want to bring our message here full circle here today. That's why I've kind of gone through these things a little more quickly so we can land on this. I said we would come back to those who were taken outside of the camp because they had were defiled and unclean. Just to make sure we're all on the same page here, this still applies today. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21, verses 7 through 8, and then also verse 27. Revelation chapter 21, verses 7 through 8, starting verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha 
and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to you the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But, the big buts in the Bible, they're not always positive. But, the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the light of the fire which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Skip down to verse 27. But there shall by no means enter into it, speaking of the new Jerusalem, that which defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. God is still ultimately not going to allow anything that defiles, anything that is a defilement into his presence for all of eternity. It's an eternal principle that we see happening in numbers. The Bible is how many stories, church? One story, right? The Old Testament points to Christ. This is why Jesus shared with the two men who were on the road to Emmaus. Himself, he declared himself to them, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He says, this is me. All the way from the, from, from the beginning with Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. It begins with me, and then he gets into all the prophets. There's a message that I would want to hear. That would be the one. Be quiet. A message that Jesus gave these two guys in the road to Emmaus. He preached himself to them from the Old Testament. Saying this all points to me. I was studying this a few months ago when I knew we were going to do a series on this. Preparing for this series and I came across something that a man by the name of Ligon Duncan had written on this. Numbers chapter 5 here. The Chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary. He highlighted three miracles of Jesus that I had never correlated with Numbers chapter 5 before. To this law that we see here. They're found in Luke chapter 5 and Luke chapter 8. There's three cases. Luke tells us in chronological order. And this floored me as I read these passages. Turn to Luke chapter 5. Verses 12 through 16. And it happened when he was in a certain city that behold a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus. And he fell. What did he have? Leprosy. And he fell on his face and he implored him saying, Lord, if you are willing, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then he put out his hand. Jesus put out his hand. Think about this for a moment here. All the way back, even within the Old Testament, you were to avoid any kind of contact with leprosy. Jesus puts out his hand and he touches him. And he says, I am willing be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left the man. Put that said in here for a second. They were to be put outside the camp if they were unclean with leprosy or what have you. And yet Jesus now comes onto the scene 
and people are coming up to him with leprosy and he's reaching out his hand and he's touching them. And they're being made clean and Jesus is not becoming unclean because that's what would happen every time that they would touch somebody with leprosy. And they had to be put outside the camp if they touched someone who was leprosy, had leprosy. Everyone knew you don't touch a leper. But Jesus touched him and the leper becomes clean and Jesus is not unclean. Jesus can do, here's the point, Jesus can do what the ceremonial laws can never do. The priests are never given instruction in the Old Testament. Here's how you make them, here's how you, they can be clean. Just tells you what to do after they go through the period of time and come back. But Jesus makes them clean. How about Luke chapter 8 verses 40 through 48. So it was when Jesus returned and the multitude welcomed him for they were all waiting for him. Behold, there came a man named Jairus. He was a ruler of the synagogue and he fell down at Jesus' feet and he begged him to come to his house for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. Now a woman having a, what does it say in your, in your Bible? Flow of blood, right? What would that be? A bodily discharge. See, Jesus didn't just do miracles for the heck of it. Everything he did had a purpose. He was definitely doing it with a heart of compassion because he loves people. He loves to heal them. But he was also pointing to the reality that I am who I say I am. I am the one that you have been waiting for. I am God come in the flesh. I am Messiah. She had an issue of blood. Flow of blood for 12 years. She had been all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any. She'd seen all the doctors. Nobody had the cure for what she needed. She came from behind and she touched just the border, just the hem of his garment. And immediately her flow of blood stopped. Immediately her flow of blood stopped. And Jesus says, who touched me? And all denied it that were around him. And Peter and all those who were with him were like, Master, are you crazy? That's my paraphrase. The multitudes throng and press you and you say, who touched me? People all around you. No, somebody touched me for healing. But Jesus said, somebody touched me for I perceived power going out from me. Now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she's like, I'm caught. He's probably going to know and probably does know who already touched him, right? We figure Jesus probably knew that. She came trembling and falling down before him. She declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he told her, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Here in this situation, she touched Jesus. Jesus was not clean because of it, but she was made clean. 
This is saying something. Luke continues on here with the raising of this little girl from what? From the dead. Three things, right? Three things. If anybody has leprosy, if anybody has a discharge, bodily discharge, if anybody touches a dead body, you got to put them outside the camp. While he was still speaking, someone came, the ruler of the synagogue's house, from there, and saying to him, Your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, Do not be afraid. Only believe, and she will be made well. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and the mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for her. But he said, Do not weep. She's not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. But he put them all outside, took her by the hand. Not supposed to do this. Not supposed to touch that body. Took her by the hand and he called. Said, Little girl, arise. And her spirit returned. How do you know she was dead? Her spirit returned. Her spirit returned. And she arose immediately and he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one. Luke is saying here loud and clear, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and he's come to do the work that only he can do. Is there a New Testament passage that comes to your mind when you read Numbers chapter 5 about the command to put those who are unclean outside of the camp? As I was studying this, there was one passage that just kept ringing in my ears. If you read your Bible and your Bible's not sitting on the shelves, maybe you know where this is. Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to close with this. I promise. This is where we're landing. This is, the, this is the final approach, right? Hebrews chapter 13 speaks the same language of what you read here in Numbers. Starting in verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle, they have no right to eat. For the, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. This is where the sacrifice was made, outside the camp. The same place that those who were unclean had to go to. Therefore, Jesus, also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered where? Outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Amazing correlation here of what Christ is accomplishing. This is the same language that's being used here. Jesus was crucified outside the city gates. The writer of Hebrews is saying we have one. The same reason why Jesus could tell the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you, is because he was condemned. 
The same reason why he was the one who could touch people and they would be made clean and he would not be made unclean is because he is the only one who could do it. Well, let's go to him outside the camp. I want to give you a closing blessing that is actually found back in Numbers chapter 6 that we were looking at, but we went over, we passed over it so that we could come back to it here. It's a very famous blessing that the people of Israel were, that God gave to the people of Israel. Last night, Ian and Delaney got married, and I don't think this was a coincidence. It just hurt my heart that we are to end this way here today. Dave and Trey, Dave shared yesterday at the reception that this blessing that's found here in Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through 27, they would pray this blessing over their children from the time they were newborns to present day. Dave. Prayed that over his son yesterday and his new daughter-in-law. It's found in Numbers chapter 6, verses 22. 27. Why am I not finding this here right now? Is it 7 Five, I don't know. It is 622. I'm in Leviticus. Yeah, it's not there. It's not there. They moved it. And the Lord said to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. This is how you do a blessing, he's saying. So this is very appropriate to apply to our kids. Think about the implications. This is what I began to think about. Think about the implications. The relation between this and the glories of the gospel. What we've just read in Hebrews here right now. Say this to them. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the children of the little tra literal translation, invoke my name upon the children of Israel. And I will bless them when you do that. How amazing is that? When you think about the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because there's only one reason why anybody can experience that kind of a blessing. The only reason why you and I can rest fully assured of the words of Jesus Christ where he says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. Why? How can we be so assured that that is true? Because Jesus was forsaken by the Father. In your place, in my place. He bore the wrath of God in our place. Think about this and this blessing that's given. The Lord bless you. He was made a curse for us. 
That's the only way that we can receive this blessing. How can he keep us? Because he was forsaken in our place. How can he make his face shine upon us? His father turned his face away from his son, looking upon his son who became sin for us. Be gracious to you because he was forsaken once again. Lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God treated his son as an enemy on the cross so that you and I can know the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. The Bible's how many stories, church? In Genesis to Revelation, I want to ask you to stand right now and I want you to hold out your hands. I want to pray this blessing over you. On the authority of God's word, not my own, I got nothing. But on the authority of God's word, put your hand out and receive this here today. Church of hope, the Lord bless you. And the Lord keep every single one of you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it. We thank you that you say in your word, so shall they put my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. Bless the Lord as only you can. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people say. Amen. 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 If you need prayer for anything here today, we'd love to pray with you and for you. If you have any questions about what we talked about here today, go to your community group and talk about it. Amen. You are